when Vivek and I were engaged, I remember the first question we would get, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You tell someone you're getting engaged and you're getting married and you're going to have this, you found this person who you think is your life partner, your soulmate. To my friends, it was excitement and celebration. But then there were those in what someone I love calls the outer circle. (laughs) In the outer circle, I would get the congratulation, but then I would get those complimentary questions that were also concern. But what about when you pray? What about when you eat? What about when the whole family comes together? When your outer circle starts whispering, you start to wonder, can we really do this? Are we crazy? Are we fooling ourselves? So the wedding is approaching, and we're getting excited, and we head to the most typical place for a South Asian Punjabi-themed wedding, Williamsburg, Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have a really intimate rehearsal dinner, you know, with just 250 people. (laughs) And I'm just excited i can feel it's really going to happen but still those little whispers in the back of my head and then my dad stands up and he lifts his glass he looks at my other dad and he says and this is my dad who was born in india and then moved to pakistan or fled to my father-in-law who was born in present-day pakistan and fled to india And my father held his glass, and he looked at you, and he said, Welcome home, my brother. And there wasn't a dry eye in the the house. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you just heard me share a very personal story about my family on stage at our first live story slam back in 2018. The theme was many beliefs, one family. What I didn't share that night was that when Vivek and I decided to get married, we actually had trouble finding someone who would agree to officiate. We wanted a spiritual service that incorporated religious prayers and rituals from both the Muslim and Hindu traditions. But we couldn't find someone willing to do both at the same time. And we wanted one ceremony. So we turned to a dear friend, Reverend Dr. Jimmy Harper, a Baptist minister with a big interfaith heart. After all, his wife was Jewish. And for more than a decade, he led the regional office for the National Conference of Christians and Jews. So he didn't hesitate when we asked. He drove up from Atlanta, Georgia to Williamsburg to work with us to officiate his first and only Muslim Hindu wedding. It was in English with a soft Southern accent. At the time, we were all outliers. Today, two decades later, that's no longer the case. According to the Pew Forum, seven in 10 marriages today are between couples from different faith traditions. Many include matches that were once 
frowned upon. Knitting together families of Christians and Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, and also, more commonly, those with no religious identity or affiliation at all. And as the country has changed, so have the attitudes about the way faith fits into marriage. To explore this trend and growing community, this week's guest is Susan Katzmiller. She's the author of two books on interfaith marriage, including a journal designed to help families chart their way forward. Katzmiller writes from her lived experience. She's not only the child of an interfaith marriage, Susan met and married a partner with a different faith identity. And together, she and her husband made a decision to raise their children in both traditions. That decision itself marks a shift in thinking about religious parenting. It's an experience she shares in her first book, Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. Here's Susan, reading from a New York Times opinion piece she wrote. In the course of a year, my family observes Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Sukkot, Simchat Torah, Hanukkah, Passover, and many Shabbats. We also observe All Saints Day and All Souls, Advent, Christmas, Lent, and Easter. We're part of a growing movement to raise interfaith children with both family religions. Whether we are born into one religion or two or more or none, our spiritual identity evolves as long as we think and breathe. Faith may wax or wane, allegiance shift, inspiration arrive in the form of a brief mystical encounter or new love. Every one of us creates a complex map of personal, religious, and spiritual influences. Producer Kimberly Winston spoke with Susan by Zoom from her home in Tacoma Park, Maryland, to discuss the best practices for interfaith couples, their children, and their families. So, Susan, I know that you grew up as a child in an interfaith marriage. Your father was from an Episcopalian background, am I correct? (laughs) That's opposite. (laughs) Okay, so your father was Jewish, and your mother was from an Episcopalian background. Yeah, so... My parents were an interfaith couple. They married in 1960 when it wasn't very common to be an interfaith couple. And my father was Jewish. My mother was Episcopalian. And they did what most family members, most clergy were urging them to do, which is that they picked one religion. Mm. So my siblings and I were raised in Reform Judaism. As an adult, my husband and I made a different choice. We raised our two kids with both Judaism and Christianity, with both of their family religious heritages. And they're now grown. They're 28 and 25. Mm. So they are adults who are second-generation interfaith kids, in a sense. Mm -hmm. And what changed in our society that by the time you got married and were entering an interfaith union, you decided to raise the children in both? What I tell young couples, couples of all kinds, is that no one pathway is going to work for all interfaith families. You really have to make the choice based on what you feel, what your partner feels, 
the communities available in your geographic area. There's a lot of factors that play into making that choice. I think my parents made a good choice to raise us as Reformed Jews, and there were benefits to that choice, and there were challenges. Every pathway you choose is going to have benefits and challenges, Mm. and no pathway that you choose is going to solve uh, the problem of being Mm -hmm. an interfaith family because I don't see it as a problem, Mm -hmm. and because it can't really be solved in the sense of making it disappear. Interfaith kids know that they have extended family in more than one religion. Even if you raise them with one religious identity, with one religious education, and they will be formed by that experience of having extended family from two religions in a way that I think is very positive and something to celebrate. So, My husband and I made a different decision than my parents did, in part because by the time we were raising our kids, there was a community available to us where you could raise kids with both of those religions, and they could have an interfaith education in a sort of a Sunday school program. That was not something my parents had access to. That didn't exist in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up. But now there are communities where you can do that in New York, in Chicago, in Washington, in Philadelphia. Mm. And um, in uh, one of your pieces, you said, growing up, I experienced both the benefits and the drawbacks of being raised in one religion. Often I felt marginalized as an interfaith child and had to fight to defend my claim to Judaism. Tell me about what some of the benefits were and what some of the drawbacks were of being raised in one religion when you were a child? I think all interfaith children have to defend their identities and explain their identities. Uh, Even if you pick one religion for them or no religions or all religions, uh, you will be put in the position of people saying, wait a minute, what are you? Or Mm. you can't be this or you can't be that or you can't do both. You're going to encounter those challenges, and that is a benefit because it forces you to think more deeply about your own beliefs, your own practices, the affiliations that you want to have. And so I think interfaith kids, no matter how they're raised, have a heightened awareness and a sort of a facility with uh expressing themselves around issues of religion and spirituality and philosophy because they are by definition put into a world that wants to see people as one thing, that wants to have sort of simplistic identity labels. When we know that human beings are complex, people have all kinds of complexity, whether it's about their religious background or their racial background or their gender identities. We are coming to understand that all of these things are non-binary, are complicated, are a spectrum, are areas where we can make a lot of different choices, not just either or choices. Mm -hmm. And then when you became an interfaith parent, you and your husband, what were the two faiths you each brought to the marriage? So my husband 
was raised Episcopalian, as was my mother. He actually had a great-grandfather who was an Episcopal bishop, Mm -hmm. and I had a great-grandfather who was a rabbi. (laughs) Religion was important in both of our families, and so we made this decision to do both with our kids, to educate them in both. My belief is that interfaith education benefits children, all children, not just interfaith children, and certainly all interfaith children, whether you choose to have them have a singular religious affiliation or dual affiliation or no affiliation, uh, they benefit from understanding those belief systems that are represented in their family. So that if they go to, say, a cousin's baptism or a cousin's bar mitzvah, they have some sense of context for those rituals. Mm. They have that education. When my parents married, no one dreamed of, for instance, co-officiation at a marriage. So they had a rabbi. Actually, my mother's priest said a blessing, but it was clear that the rabbi was uh, the officiant. By the time my husband and I got married in the late 80s, we were able to have a rabbi and a minister co-officiate. So that is something that's possible now that wasn't really possible then. My parents had a hard enough time finding a rabbi that would marry them at all as an interfaith couple, let alone trying to find someone who would co-officiate. I don't think anyone had really dreamed of that yet. Wow. And that was in 1960. Yeah. That was a pretty forward-thinking rabbi. Yes. What did the conversation between you and your husband look like when you decided to talk about how we're going to raise the children? And by extrapolation, what are the things that current couples should talk about if they're considering raising the children in more than one faith? My husband and I are both sort of intellectual religion, history, politics, science, uh, geeks, where we're, we love to read, we love to debate ideas. He teaches uh, in a graduate program now. I had been a teacher. And I think it felt natural to us to want to give our children deeper education. So we were drawn to the idea of doing both, even though you do have to go out and defend it to the world. But as I said, you're going to have to defend any choice that you make. Mm. What do you advise couples when each partner is from a different faith background? What should they discuss before they get married about raising the children with religion? There are so many things that you can and should talk about when you enter into a relationship the more deeply you can describe your own religious experiences as a child, your own spiritual experiences to your partner, that's going to really benefit your relationship. And then, of course, there are life cycle rituals that it's helpful to discuss beyond marriage. You know, what kind of baby welcoming rituals do you want to have? What kind of coming-of-age rituals do you envision for your child? And why do you want those things? Is it just 
that's what we do in my family, because that's not a very helpful answer to a partner. It's much more helpful if you can explain what the theological meaning is, what the meaning is to you. And my journal helps you to have those discussions. It brings up all of those topics for you in a structured way um, to make it easier to have those conversations. Now, I do want to say that you can't work all of this out before getting married and Mm. then think that you're done because life goes on. And each of us is on a journey in terms of our own religious practice, our own spirituality, our own affiliations. And you're going to meet mentors that might change the way you feel about religion. Some people end up converting. Some people end up leaving their religion. And you can't anticipate all that when you're, you know, a new couple. So you have to stay flexible. You have to understand that you can try to negotiate an agreement, but that you can't hold a partner to an agreement like that when they're on their own journey and things may be changing for them. So my journal is actually helpful for a new couple, but it's also helpful anytime you hit a kind of a stumbling block where you feel like the two of you are no longer in agreement or you need to reconsider things that you decided before your relationship really became deep or before you got married. So it can be helpful to revisit what's in the journal, those questions about what do you feel? What do you want? Why do you want it? How does your partner understand what it is that you're going through? And these moments often come up also in times of trouble. When a parent dies, um, say you have a miscarriage, say, uh, you know, any kind of challenge in your personal life can create a situation where you rethink your relationship to the religion you came from or the religions that you claim and practice in your life. And so you have to look at all of that in context with your partner and be able to communicate about it. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you missed any portion of the conversation, you can visit interfaithradio.org to stream this episode and subscribe to the podcast. If you're enjoying listening to some of the stories shared at the Story Slam from 2018 and feel inspired to share your own, well, guess what? We're planning a virtual Story Slam for March 2022. If you want to receive an invitation to join, send an email to storyslam2022 at interfaithradio.org. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. 
We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Tell me your name. Denise. Denise, welcome. So I um, I come from an interfaith family background. Uh, my parents were both um, raised in devout Christian homes. Um, my mother's family was from South Carolina and uh, were African Methodist Episcopal, which I would call mainline black. <laughs> Mainline Protestant, okay. <laughs> so, and uh, my mother died when I was very young, and we moved to Connecticut. My father remarried. Um, I grew up with Quaker step grandparents. My step brothers and sisters were Jewish. Um, we continued to worship with our African Methodist Episcopal grandparents in South Carolina. But in the tween years, my parents decided we'll meet in the middle, and we started going to Unitarian Universalist Church <laughs> Fellowship, Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. Religion has been hard for me. Uh, it's been very important for me. Um, you know, it's a, a, a journey um, for belonging, you know, finding, finding your place. I um, stepped away from religion, but I was always on the quest, uh, knowing that there was something more bigger than I was. Um, I knew that intellect alone could not, you know, help you get through a lifetime. Today, I am a Christian, and I am an AME, or African Methodist Episcopal practitioner. My uh, beau is Catholic, and we struggle with uh, differences, um, but what we look for most is the love um, in everybody, that we can see in everyone, and it's what carries us through. Thanks. The success of an interfaith family can often depend on far more people than a set of parents. Denise's story, shared from a live stage at our Inspired Story Slam in November 2018, illustrates this and so much more. 
Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, we're looking at love in all the interfaith places with former journalist and author Susan Katz-Miller. Her book, Being Both, is informed by her personal experiences within her family and her efforts navigating religious parenting. Katz discovered there were few resources, so she set out to change that. In addition to being both, she has written a journal for interfaith partners designed to help them plot their own personal interfaith journey for the whole family. Let's get back to producer Kimberly Winston in conversation with Susan Katz-Miller. Tell me a little bit about the Interfaith Families Project that you were co-chair of in Washington, D.C., which is your hometown right now, right? Right. It's kind of, when I read about it, it seemed like a, almost a, a Sunday school for interfaith families. Right. So the idea sprung up organically in different cities in the 80s and 90s, that interfaith families could come together and form communities. And they could support each other in creating interfaith education for interfaith children. And a lot of these programs started as, you know, what from a Christian perspective is called Sunday school, as religious education programs. And then in some cases, the adults said, we want more for ourselves, not just for our children. And so a lot of other programming sprung up around the religious education where there's adult education, where there is support um, for life cycle rituals, and clergy began to participate And so in the Washington, D.C. program, we have a rabbi and a minister on staff, and they lead what's called a gathering on a Sunday morning where there's songs and, you know, uh, discussion and prayer. Mm -hmm. And then the kids go off to religious education. And about how large is this community in the D.C. area? Um, There's over 100 families, actually. It's hard to tell in the pandemic what's going on. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a little bit chaotic right now. And it's been online and then it's not online and then it's right. back online. Right. So it's, you know, like like all communities, there's been, you know, a lot of struggle to keep the thing, not to keep it going because people are passionate about yeah. this. Once they find it, there are people looking for this. And when they find it, they it's really profound for them. Yeah. An exciting thing that has happened during the pandemic is that people from across the country can now participate. So we have interfaith couples all around the country who are Zooming in, and their children then can also Zoom into interfaith education programming. So any indication that they may start their own interfaith families project in their city if they don't already have one? In some cases, that happens. There's a spinoff in Philadelphia, for instance. But in other cases, what they've realized is, in at least in pandemic times, they can zoom in and participate right. fully without having to recreate the whole structure. Now, in your book, Being Both, 
you interviewed a number of teenagers who were raised in interfaith families. Right. And they told you some very interesting things. Tell me, what were the things that they most liked about being raised as interfaith children? I think that they feel empowered by the decision that their parents made to let them make their own choices in adulthood. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, some people see it as this terrible burden that you put on interfaith kids that they might be able to choose their religion someday. But the fact is, all human beings have choice. All human beings can make their own religious choices in adulthood. And a lot of people change their denomination, their religion as adults, even if they come from monofaith families. So everybody has that privilege, that right, that burden, however you want to see it, of making those adult choices. But for these interfaith kids that I interviewed and surveyed, they, I think, appreciated what their parents had done in being upfront about the fact that they do have those choices. What did the parents most like about it? What draws parents to this pathway is the sense of balance, mm. the sense that you're not going to have a more dominant parent in the relationship when it comes to religion, that it will try to have balance, and that you will be working together, that you're not going to be a guest when you go with your family to a you know, religious service that each of you is sort of equal as a religious parent, that is appealing to a lot of people. The educational part is also appealing to a lot of people. We have a lot of families where both parents would actually describe themselves as secular. Mm. They are not looking for a faith community. They have often left a community of faith or a synagogue or a church, but they still want their children to be educated in say, the Bible stories and the role that religion has had in American history and politics to be able to understand the signs and the symbols and the rituals around them. And so they see it as important education, sort of beside all of the question of religious identity or spirituality. One of the things I really like about what you wrote is that it gives the extended family equal weight. So like you don't have to be afraid of grandma's rosary, right? Uh, you don't right. have to tell one set of grandparents, no, you can't say grace at the table when my child is over there, or you can't take my child to mass or to temple or whatever it may be. That it makes, it gives the whole family, not just one parent or the other parent or one set of grandparents or the other set of grandparents, a say in the spiritual development of the child. Absolutely. Of course, you're never going to make all of the extended family happy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> they're, still, they're still going to be, you know, sort of rooting for their team often, um, but it does allow you to see the extended family as ambassadors, as teachers, and encourage them to share with children their songs, their stories, their recipes in a way that is a little more relaxed mm -hmm. than if you were worrying the whole time that they were going to sway the kids or, you know, change what you've decided should be their identities. 
author Susan Katz-Miller on best parenting practices for interfaith families. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, we're taking a look at interfaith relationships, and we're airing stories that were shared from the stage at the Inspired Story Slam that took place in November 2018. Stories from listeners like Carol. Carol Light of Silver Spring. Carol, welcome. I've changed what I was going to tell three times since sitting in my chair. So I wanted to talk about a very important relationship in my life um, that was in the mid-70s. I was a single parent. My kids were, oh, maybe five or six years old. And I was teaching ESL to young adults. And I would become friendly with some of the students and there was one particular man who I became quite friendly with when he wasn't my student anymore. Okay, don't take my name down. It's okay. Um, <clears throat> Adele was a Palestinian, and he was Muslim. And he was a damn good-looking man. He was also a wonderful cook. And he would make me tea, and he would make all kinds of wonderful foods for me. Um, I'm sorry that I lost the falafel tool that he had given me because it was really his falafel was really very special. Um, when I would have groups of students over um, for a party, he would he would like clean out my cabinets and do all this stuff to help me. Finally, I just had to break down and go out with him. We knew from the very beginning that we could never get married. He was Muslim and Palestinian, and I was Jewish. I had spent four and a half years living in Muslim countries, so I knew that you didn't go against your parents and that marriage would really be impossible for us. And it was after a year and a half of dating that I realized that I didn't want to be in a, in a committed relationship that wasn't going to lead to marriage. And so we broke up, but remained good friends for a good time after that. We had many, many good discussions. When you are interfaith or intercultural, you can't just take things for granted. You can't take for granted that the other person is going to understand why you feel the way you feel. So we ended up having many, many good discussions there was one thing that I couldn't get past, though, and this was something that I never shared with him. He was a strong Palestinian. He came from Gaza Strip, from Khan Yunus. He had had awful things happen to him. And I always wondered if he knew that there was going to be an attack at my synagogue, where was his allegiance? Was it to me or was it to his people? And I just couldn't bring that up. It was too difficult. This week, our guest is Susan Katzmiller, author of two books on interfaith marriages and families. 
As we get back to the conversation, producer Kimberly Winston asks Susan about some of the interfaith families she's encountered in her work. All right, so I have this crazy question for you. (laughs) (laughs) I've been... I can't believe it's one I haven't heard yet. We'll see. <laughs> I bet it is. I bet it is. But it suddenly occurred to me. So, you know, I've been a religion reporter for a long time, about 25 years. In the time that I've been a religion reporter, I have seen several times a family in turmoil or crisis when a child comes home from school and says, Mom, Dad, I joined the, you know, fill in the blank religion club, and it's a different religion than the parents. Or mom, dad, I want to go to fill in the blank house of worship this weekend, which is totally different from the religion they were raised in. Um, I have multiple friends who at some point in their teenage years became born again Christians, and their parents were not, and it caused this huge uproar in the family. If something like that happens, if it's the child who makes the family interfaith by converting or declaring uh, membership in a certain religion when they're a teenager, what is the best way that parents can handle that? What is the best way, both in terms of the benefit for the child and the benefit for the family as a whole? Okay, this is a slightly different tack. (laughs) (laughs) So this isn't one you've heard before? Well, I mean, it's something I've thought about. Because like in my family, my son came home and said, Mom, Dad, I'm a vegetarian. And it was like, oh, my God. Now what are you? I have to buy new cookware. I have to do this. And it was a big deal. And that was just vegetarianism. If the kid comes home and says, you know, suddenly I am fill in the blank religion. It can cause equal turmoil. Yeah. This is a perfect example of the fact that we do not control our children's religious identities. Mm. We can choose for them when they're born, when they're very small, but eventually they do grow up and they do make their own decisions. And conversion is a way that a family suddenly becomes interfaith. It can be shocking because... You know, you, it can happen quite suddenly and you don't have time to think about it. I go back to the same advice that I give to any kind of interfaith family, which is deep communication and deep education. So you want to read about whatever religion your child is choosing in that moment. You want to communicate with them, keep the lines of communication open You also want to understand that it's pretty rare for people to make a dramatic shift and then stick with it for the rest of their life, Mm -hmm. Um, that everybody's on a journey and that you do have to allow children of a certain age to make their own choices. And, you know, they may or may not make a different choice. And that might be in a month or it might be in 10 years. And... You don't control it. You're talking about couples who can discuss all of this before they get married, but that life is a journey and things change. (sighs) Something I observed a couple of times when I was covering the atheism beat 
was a husband and wife, um, both committed to the same religion, the same church, usually. And for whatever reason, one of the spouses loses his or her faith in God. So they don't just, you know, I'm going over to a different religion, but it's, I no longer believe this very, you know, foundational thing that undergirds a lot of our lives. I no longer believe in this foundational thing that I believed in when we met and married. And in every case that I can think of that I encountered, this ended the marriage, very sadly. What can couples do when something that huge of a foundational shift happens? What are some of the best practices that they can do to save the marriage? Well, first, it's important to know, to understand that it is possible to have a successful marriage between say, an evangelical Christian and an atheist. Mm -hmm. Those marriages are out there. If you convince yourself it's not going to work, then it's not going to work. It's also important to understand that the largest and fastest growing segment of interfaith families are Christians married to nonbelievers. So it's common. It, It is very much possible. What is difficult is when one partner, no matter what their religion is, has an exclusive conception of religion where they cannot accept that their partner is from a different religion or they believe they're, you know, in, in, in mortal peril right. if they don't take on their religion. Um, and this could be, it could be a Christian, it could be a Muslim, it could be, it's, you know, you find that kind of orthodox thinking in every religion. There is a variety of that kind of fundamentalism that you can find in any religion. So the problem is a fundamentalist mm. married to somebody who doesn't agree with those fundamental principles. And that can be a difficult relationship to enter and it can be difficult when the relationship becomes uh that kind of relationship where one of the partners becomes more fundamentalist in their belief that can be a problem yeah Yeah. Mm. and i assume the the prescription is the same keep the channels of communication open yeah, and you you know, you may reach a point where you can see that it will not work. Yeah. I'm not saying that all interfaith marriages work. I didn't say that. I mm-hmm, never said that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I I do believe that if you do the work to understand each other more deeply and educate each other more deeply that It makes for a stronger marriage. Mm. I see a lower divorce rate among interfaith families that do this in an intentional way and do the work of the communication and the education. Mm. Because I think 
they're working those communication skills. They're developing that muscle for communicating, and that's going to benefit them in all the other realms of the marriage, mm-hmm. whether you know, you're having tension over finances or how to load the dishwasher. It doesn't matter what the topic is. If you are good at empathy and putting yourself in your partner's shoes, then that's going to benefit you. Yeah. Compassion, compassion, compassion. Yep. Yep. It has been about 10 years since the publication of Being Both. In the time since Being Both was published, how have you seen attitudes towards interfaith marriages change? And do you think that the number of interfaith marriages is on the rise? Yes, the demographics are on the side of of people in interfaith marriages. We are becoming more common, more numerous. Uh, It's becoming the norm in a lot of urban, diverse areas that people are in interfaith families. When I speak to groups, I say, you know, raise your hand if you or your children or your siblings or your aunts or uncles are in interfaith relationships and everybody raises their hand. Mm. So even if it's not you, it's your extended family is interfaith. Uh, You probably know the Pew Research statistics on this, Mm -hmm. that 39% of marriages after 2010 are interfaith or um, between major streams of Christianity. So, that is going to eventually have what I think is a beneficial effect when you have people from interfaith families in leadership positions that affects everything. Look at Kamala Harris, right? right? She's an interfaith kid from a Christian and Hindu interfaith family, and she's married to a Jewish man. So I call that an interfaith trifecta. Yeah. She's got three <laughs> religions going there. And uh, she's comfortable with it and she yeah. embraces it and she talks about it. And all of that creates a great role model. What's also going to have an effect is when we have more clergy from interfaith families, mm. people in positions of power in the religious institutions who understand the importance of interfaith families demographically, but also understand that it, it gives you a different lens when you have interfaith family experience, that it really can help you see things in a new way. I've seen a lot of progress in the last 10 years in some religious denominations and streams and religions uh, in terms of being more accepting of interfaith families, of, for instance, allowing clergy to be in interfaith marriages. Mm. And allowing people in interfaith families to be a greater part of uh, religious communities. So I definitely have seen progress. Mm. Before we leave this week's show, we want to share one last story from our Inspired Story Slam stage Back in 2018, it's from a person near and dear to all of us, our show's founder, Maureen Fiedler, a Catholic nun who wanted to promote interfaith understanding after 9-11. The theme here tonight has to do with uh, family 
And um, my own physical family is all Catholic. What can I tell you? I mean, you know, at least I'm now they're not still that. I am a sister of Loretto, and I have a Loretto family. And we have vowed members, supposedly all Catholic. But anyway, we also have co-members. And co-members can be any faith tradition. So I write down, I know at least one, Kim Klein, is a Jewish member. We have Mennonites. We have a variety of Protestants and Muslims in, in the Loretto community, in my Loretto family. Uh, and co-members, if you came to our mother house, you wouldn't know one from the other. You wouldn't know a sister from a co-member. And co-members, you know, stay in the same sleeping areas and all that sort of stuff as everybody else. Um, so it's a wonderful tradition and uh, something that I, I really affirm. You know, one family, many beliefs. It's, I, just, I guess I, my hope and my prayer is that that vision could somehow or other permeate the world at large. You know, because so much of the conflict in the world comes out of an inability to understand one another's beliefs and faith traditions. And so I'm hoping that that ability to be interfaith, to welcome, to seek to understand, to seek a deeper understanding of one another and their beliefs um, can permeate the world. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning more about our guest, Susan Katzmiller, or finding links to her books, head over to interfaithradio.org for this week's show notes. While you're there, you can also learn about us, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or by searching Interfaith Voices in the podcatcher of your choice. And while you're there, help us out, leave a rating and a review. It really does help others find us. If you enjoyed this week's episode and felt inspired to share your own story, guess what? You'll have a chance. We're planning a virtual story slam for March 2022, and we'd love to have you join. If you want to receive an invitation with the Zoom link, send an email to storyslam2022 at interfaithradio.org. This week's episode was produced by Kimberly Winston, Kevin McCarthy, and myself. Thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, I hope you are well. I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.